Section 18 of The Influence of Monarchs by Frederick Adams Woods. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 17. Interpretation of the Results. Having viewed the undulating waves of economic and political prosperity in detail, it now behooves us to leave the microscopic method for the macroscopic and to take a broad survey of the whole matter. Standing back at a distance, the main outlines are still clearly enough visible. The rise and decline of Spain and Portugal, Sweden and Turkey, the cumulative but spasmodic growth of France, the early slow and late accelerating growth of Prussia and Russia, the evanescent importance of the Dutch, the retarded development of Scotland, the comparative negativeness of Austria, the unexpanded state of Denmark, and the early hesitating but afterwards continuous progress of England. These all present themselves in mass in bold relief, and with these variations are the concomitant variations in the intellectual strength of the monarchs themselves. Some correlation is evident. How much that correlation is becomes the first question. The cause of the correlation is the second. The following table shows numerically the correlations, as derived from the tabulation in the appendix, between the three grades for conditions and the three grades for rulers. At the bottom are the totals for all countries and these figures are the basis for the general correlation approximately obtained. The figure 8 in the upper line for France means that there were cases where the ruler was plus, at the same time that the conditions were plus. Next to the right, the four means that the four instances occurred in France when a plus ruler was associated with medium conditions. There were no cases in France where a plus ruler was associated with minus or declining conditions. On pages 241 to 244, the tables, interpretation of the results are displayed. For France, Castile, Aragon, Spain, Portugal, Netherlands, Denmark, Sweden, Russia, Prussia, Austria, Turkey, Scotland, England in 1066 to 1603, England in 1603 to 1811, and the totals. All taken together, the totals show 105 instances of a superior ruler associated with advancing conditions against 11 associated with decline. The true numbers are probably less than 11 and greater than 105, as I have thrown all the doubtful cases, or those of two signs, into squares which are at least close representing identity. Thus, if the ruler were plus and the conditions neutral or negative, it has been counted as one case of ruler plus, conditions minus, and so for each case on the border line no doubt. The figures for each country separately are too small for mathematical treatment, but they are not too small for a uniform result. With the exception of modern England, all show an unmistakable correlation. An idea of this is gained by comparing the greater weights of the numbers in the upper right and lower left-hand squares, multiplied together, with those in the upper left and lower right, multiplied together. If there were no correlation, r equals 0, the products would balance each other. If the correlation were perfect, r equals 1.0, all the numbers would fall into the upper left, the center and lower right squares. The amount of deviation from this, r equals 1.0, is measurable and in this result for the total is about r equals 0.6 to 0.7 with a probable error of about 0.05. I have not given more than an approximate value to r, but I feel secure in placing it at r equals 0.60 for the lowest limit of its value. This, it must be remembered, is a very high correlation in comparison with the general run of anthropometric and biological results.
the correlation coefficient must not be confused with the percentage as a matter of percentage it is possible to express the results in the table for totals thus out of 354 cases 41 or less than 12 percent show conflict 223 or more than 63 percent show identity and 25 percent divide this significance if the cases with the double sign negative or plus etc are halved and one half lauded to increasing the percentage of identity then 70 percent of the cases would show identity of signs and less than 10 percent show conflict or the remainder would divide their significance a summarized statement of the results in terms of percentages would be strong mediocre and weak monarchs are associated with strong mediocre and weak periods respectively in about 70 percent of the cases strong monarchs are associated with weak periods and weak monarchs including non-royal regions with strong periods in about 10 percent of the cases in about 20% of the cases, mediocre monarchs are associated with strong or weak periods, or mediocre periods are associated with strong or with weak monarchs. To return to the correlation coefficient and its significance, the reader will now see that the coefficient of correlation is obviously more convenient than percentages, as it expresses in a single fraction or that can be put into an unworldly paragraph. Other correlations can, in the future, be worked out and compared with it, as for example, the correlations between politico-economic conditions on the one hand and on the other, a number of likely concomitant variables, the personalities of prime ministers, the condition of war or peace, intellectual, religious or artistic activity, adventitious opportunities, and its changes in the great trade routes, climatic changes, forms of government, and amount of liberty, or any other series of changes which by above this may be thought correlated. As stated above, the correlation of R equals 0.6 is a high one, in comparison with most correlations. It is greater than that expressing the mental and bodily resemblances between children of the same parentage. The correlation coefficient for brothers is not over R equals 0.5. For parents and offspring, it is about 0.4. For man's strength or pull and stature, 0.22 to 0.3. For strength or pull and weight, 0.34 to 0.54. Some correlations are much higher, as for instance those representing the resemblances between twins, where the correlation is approximate 0.8 and are often 0.9 or more. Such high correlation ratios as these represent that sort of resemblance between twins which, to the casual observer, seems like identity and leads to all those amusing mistakes and confusions, anecdotes of which everyone recalls. So I have found a correlation between rulers and conditions running as high as 0.8 or 0.9 would be about the same as complete parallelism. Having found a substantial, indeed a very high correlation, arguably 0.6 or more, between mentalities of rulers and the conditions of their realms, the next step is to inquire the causes of this phenomenon. It may be that the monarchs have influenced the conditions. It may be that the conditions have influenced the monarchs, or both may be caused by some third external agency, or any combination of the three hypotheses is tenable. Let us first see if it is possible to find any evidence that conditions have influenced monarchs. Has any country ever moulded its rulers according to a type? The early history of Turkey would seem to support such a view, or at least it presents a coordination of facts, a repetition of events formed in the sort of way one might expect if general or external conditions were forceful enough to make themselves measurable. 
There are seven strong sultans, one after another in the Ottoman dynasty, from 1288 to 1481. A mediocre sultan comes next, and two more very high in mental grade extend the chain as far as the year 1566. It is not unlikely that such a line of strong sultans should be caused by the forces which we call hereditary, i.e. predetermined in the germplasm. A wonderful pedigree on the maternal side would make such an hereditary expected, but this cannot be claimed. The mothers of the sultans were, with one exception, the daughters of undistinguished ancestors. On the other hand, reasons can be easily imagined where the Ottoman power should have expanded as a result of general causes. Therefore, the study of this country by itself, and during this epoch, would undoubtedly induce any historian to a conviction favourable to the force of events, rather than a belief in the power of individuals. Here is a good illustration of the danger of drawing generalisations from limited historical perspective. If any one country is chosen at random, a series of repetitions of practically ten progressive periods is not to be expected, unless the pedigrees are very strong. But on the contrary, one such curious repetition of plus periods is to be expected from the laws of chance if a large number of countries and periods is made the subject of study. That is, we may rightly conclude that, for once, the strong qualities pass directly down the male line from father's son for many generations without diminution or loss. Hereditary and royalty shows that practically all the other families that continue to reproduce genius did so only when selection of similar strains on the maternal side supported the male line. The strength of the Turkish reigning line was somewhat maintained by struggles between the brothers, but even setting this aside, there is nothing in the single instance of ancient Turkey to refute the general position which I maintain, provided it is the only instance. Looking over the tabulations, one sees that ancient Turkey is the only example of such extensive repetition, and therefore no argument can be drawn from it in support of the view that long-acting circumstances have influenced monarchs. Modern England furnishes the only other example of a long unbroken series of plus periods, but here the monarchs are not plus, and the history of England from the age of Elizabeth onward has been constantly granted as not belonging to, or resembling the major portion of the history which the present volume discusses. Next in number of repetitions of plus reigns, Sweden counts five but the total periods covered is only from 1600 to 1660. There are but two instances of a whole century covered by continuously progressive reigns, in Aragon from 1035 to 1134, three reigns, and again in Aragon from 1228 to 1327, four reigns. The other cases of as many as four progressive reigns coming together is found in the Netherlands from 1507 to 1559. Table 2 proves that no analysis of the whole series of signs can be made so that cycles of prosperity and adversity can be demonstrated. Such cycles, if present, would doubtless be an argument in favour of surroundings as against personality, and the absence of such cycles is an argument in favour of personalities. The run of signs is, with the exception of modern England, nothing more than a chance or random distribution. There is no tendency for the same signs to be grouped into series. At least the tendency is not strong enough to be measurable in the data here presented. The whole series departs so little from a random arrangement that nothing can be predicted from one symbol as to the character of the next. In other words, the conditions of one reign do not sensibly influence conditions of the next. Nor is there any evidence that several reigns, say three, are, as a whole, 
so much influenced by any general or continuous force that they are moulded to a common resemblance. Nor is there any evidence of small waves of gradual rise and fall as will be expressed by negative followed by neutral followed by positive or the series positive, neutral, positive, neutral, negative, neutral, positive. Table 2 shows 28 cases where positive is preceded by positive and also followed by positive. There are 8 cases where positive is followed by positive and preceded by negative. There are 9 cases where positive is followed by positive and preceded by negative. The last is a type of sequence showing a sudden jump from negative to positive. The first shows no change, the second but slight change. The types showing an abrupt change are numbered 3, 6, 7, 8, 9, 19, 20, 21, 22, 25. The average of these is 12.8 cases showing abrupt change. The average of all the other cases, those showing gradation or similarity in the signs, is 11.3. This is somewhat artificially lowered by the greater total number of neutral signs in this group. If all those cases between 10 and 18 are omitted, we eliminate this error, but the average of the traditional cases is not much raised. The number of gradual changes then averages 13.4. It can be seen that number 9 shows 20 cases of progressive rains. It can be seen that number 9 shows 20 cases of progressive rains sandwiched between two periods of decline. Number 19 shows 15 cases of the reverse. Thus, both types which illustrate the most abrupt changes are equal to and even in excess of random expectation. Table 2 is displayed on the page of three columns, the numbered categories, the number of cases, and the sequences. A star next to the numbered categories indicates abrupt changes. These figures 20 and 15 may be matched against the figures 17 and 28 at the bottom and top of the lists. The numbers of cases are all about of equal significance. The positive-positive-positive combination occurs a few more times than any of the others, but would not present such excessive repetition except for the exceptional series in late history of England. There should be a slight correlation between the signs and their neighbouring signs. As a result of the action of hereditary, boarding successive rulers towards the same type of ability. The introduction of minorities and the starting of a new dynastic line tends to lower this correlation. But even so, I should expect a correlation ratio of about r equals 0.1 to 0.15. This relation, being small, could not be measured without a far greater number of cases. The total 354 is large enough to measure a high correlation like that between monarchs and the condition of their countries, r equals 0.6 or more. But it is not great enough to measure a low correlation like that which probably exists between one reign and the next. It is, however, a total of sufficient magnitude to prove that the correlation is not large between the conditions in one reign and the next. A high correlation would certainly have been detected even with a small total of 354. The material which I have collected is sufficiently extensive to give an answer to this particular question and to prove that there is no great tendency for periods of prosperity to be clustered in groups. Thus recapitulate the first reason for believing that the conditions have not caused the variations in the monarchs themselves to any considerable extent is drawn from both an intensive and extensive examination of the transitional periods between the different states of progress. These transitions are indicated whenever the symbols for conditions of the country change, especially when they change from positive to negative or from negative to positive.
it is usually merged into each other through the gradual transition of intervening sign which is neutral we should naturally explain the gradual change not as personal but as a general force on the contrary if there are so many cases of abrupt change occurring on the death of one king and the ascension of another then there is that much in favour of the hypothesis of personal influence an examination of the whole material demonstrate a great number of abrupt changes in the signs and moreover it may be added that a detailed reading of the actual histories dealing with these times of transitions shows numerous examples of direct statements of the abruptness of these changes all taking place in a short time a second argument in favour of monarchical influence is drawn for minorities and interrains here we have several known and admitted facts to start with the fact that it was a minority or interregnum is known and if no member of the royal family is in control as regent this fact is also known this furnishes a case of monarch minus that may be accepted with certainty these sure cases of monarch minus can then be compared with cases of monarch minus presumably based on the opinions of history if the advance and prosperity were due to the propitious circumstances why did not the countries advance during minorities they did during some minorities but under the control of some one strong leader who is virtually a monarch and acted like a monarch table three shows thirty-six minorities or interrains that were minus or retrograding in their conditions beginning at the top the minorities of john the second charles the sixth of france etc twenty-nine of these were either under weak regents or were governed by councils with divided power twenty-one of the divided regencies turned out disastrously the right-hand column shows but two divided regencies associated with plus conditions the whole series of facts and statements concerning both the disastrous and propitious conditions during minorities is understandable enough on a basis of monarch causing conditions but it's not understandable on the reverse view table three is displayed on page 253 to 255 regencies minorities and interrains divided equals power divided in a council there are three columns with minus or declining conditions neutral plus or minus on doubtful conditions and plus or progressive conditions these are divided between the rows of france castile aragon and spain scotland netherlands sweden and russia the third argument pointing in the same direction is drawn from studies in the pedigrees of monarchs the individuals who compose these pedigrees reside in various european countries as a result of the policy of international marriages so common among royal families a maternal grandfather of a french king may just as likely have been spanish or english yet the maternal grandparents are correlated as closely and are as similar in mentality as their grandsons as their probabilities of heredity through germplasm demands i have shown in hereditary and royalty that royal persons resemble their maternal grandfathers as much as their paternal and the correlations for individual with all grandfathers and all great-grandfathers are as high as is expected the circumstances conditions of the countries which we might suppose acted upon and influenced the greater generations were necessarily different from those acting upon the third or younger generation now if these circumstances had a significant importance they would show that importance by lowering the correlation ratios for hereditary these are not lowered the lines of great kings and princes correspondingly great pedigrees the only conclusion is that all the individuals developed as they did by reason of innate differences 
The men moulded the circumstances and not the reverse. Without such a view we could not explain the pedigrees, for neither men themselves nor the events in which they individually lived could have arranged the marriages of their ancestors of a hundred years previous. In other words, the special conditions in any one country might conceivably have influenced the kings, but these circumstances could not be retroactive and form pedigrees. The conditions are correlated with the pedigrees. The conditions could not cause the pedigrees. Therefore, the monarchs are the results of the pedigrees, and the conditions the results of the monarchs. By this triangulation or reasoning, the question is settled once and for all. No other explanation will suffice. This does not mean that the surroundings have not played some share in the whole story. It does mean that such influences are trivial, elusive, and difficult to measure. It may be that both the monarchs and the conditions have been moulded somewhat by some extraneous forces, but here again these efforts must be trivial, elusive, or difficult to measure. The absence of system in the arrangements of the symbols in Table 2 discourages a hope of finding any such force, but I do not wish to be understood as saying that such a third category of forces may not indeed exist. But the question is not, do environmental force exist, but how great is their importance, and where and when are they to be found? I have looked at the recorded evidence from many points of view, with the wish to decide if the observed fluctuations in material conditions of the various countries could be due to the immediate influence of the sovereigns, and I have come to the conclusion that this is the only explanation consistent with all other observations. A further inquiry will now be made to see if there is any way of comparing royalty with other social classes, those lying beneath them in point of inherited wealth, prestige and power. Royalty has had exceptional opportunities and a peculiar and isolated position. It will not affect the general conclusion of this research, which declares the positive and intuitive influence of monarchs, but one thinks that royalty as a whole has been much favoured by matters environmental, or the one takes the extreme view regarding hereditary and explains everything by inherent mental superiority. The influences are just the same, no matter what be the ultimate source of these influences. Even if all the kings be thought really very stupid, and all the observable effects could be imagined due to the blind and pleasant obedience to the divine right of kingship, the influences and moulding powers of the monarchs on history would be just the same. Also, the superiority might be real, but nevertheless favoured by education or preferment or any other external fact. The problem up to the present has been simply to measure the influence of A on B, not to estimate the magnitude of A in itself, or to compare A to anything else. I will now attempt first to compare royalty with other social classes in point of actual ability, and then take up the question of how far such ability depends on inherent gametic causes. In Hereditary and Royalty, page 301, I made the assertion that there is no doubt, but that modern royalty as a whole has been decidedly superior to the average European in capacity, and we may say without danger of refutation that the royal breed, considered as a unit, is superior to any other one family, be it that of noble or commoner. I have no wish to modify this extreme statement. Capacity is here used as meaning natural inheritability, and the word family is one large interrelated group of persons. Several converging lines of argument lead to the view here expressed and it is not easy to see just why this statement should ever be disputed. Except for the first thought, 
that superior opportunities have been enjoyed by those born to the purple. While this is a very natural feeling, allied perhaps to human vanity and supplying the middle class with a confident excuse for not achieving more glory, such a view will hardly fit in with all the facts. Nor is there any good reason why a person should be any more ashamed of being born with a poor protoplasm than of being born with a poor environment, since both are matters of birth. Monarchs have doubtless had very different opportunities from commoners, and in some ways they have had superior advantages, but in other ways they have had greater disadvantages, greater responsibilities to bear, and greater difficulties to overcome. It is difficult to weigh one against the other, but granting for the moment that the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, is there any indication that such propitious opportunities have had a discernible effect in raising the estimation in which royalty has been held? First, is the reputed ability greater than the real ability? Second, is the real ability, such as it is, and whatever it is, caused in part by environmental differences? The answer to both these questions is the same, and is yes, but not to any great extent. Not conspicuously so, not in any easy way measurably so. The affirmative answer is given from a priori considerations, from a feeling there must be something to the side of the question. The qualifying limiting clause is derived from the failure of tests to bring forth supporting evidence, and also from several considerations of a widely different nature. These may be enumerated as follows. 1. Younger sons of kings are not less eminent than heirs to the throne. 2. The precocity of royalty. 3. Their success in government as compared with ministers. 4. Their success in war as compared with non-royal generals. 5. Their genius or talents in other directions. 6. The proportionate number of recognized geniuses to the total. 7. The slightly excessive amount of insanity. 8. A priority considerations. Election of early rulers. Struggles and survival of the fittest. 1. Comparing the eminence of younger sons with those who have inherited the succession. While it does not give a chance of directly comparing royalty of non-royal classes, does serve somewhat the same purpose. If evidence can be reduced that the actual monarchs ranked higher intellectual ability than their younger brothers, we might infer that opportunity had aided the actual sovereigns in gaining their celebrity or reputed ability. As a matter of fact, the younger brothers are, according to the accounts of history, just as eminent intellectually as are the inheritors of the crown. 2. A large number of skies of royal houses have been exceedingly precocious. Not that the early manifestation of exceptional talent proves the existence of genius, but precocity is one of the symptoms of genius, therefore its presence is to be expected, and if found, becomes an argument in favour of the geniuses of the reputed ability. Most of the princes who were precocious in youth were great in maturity. William the Conqueror showed his incisive military genius before he was twenty-one. Henry I of England ruled wisely in the Cotentian when only twenty-one years old. Edward I, when only fifteen, became the soul of the reconstructed Royalist Party, and at twenty-six defeated Simon de Montfort at Eversham and met the demands of a difficult crisis. Edward III took matters into his own hands when eighteen and soon reversed the declining conditions which had marked the reign of Edward II. William III of England, like Charles XII of Sweden, was a wonderful example of premature mental development. Charles XI of Sweden was also an example of Rokosia's talents. When barely twenty years of age, he brought his country out of a condition of disaster and anarchy, and was unquestionably the initiator of all important movements from that time until his death. 
William the Silent received his first military appointment at 18, and was soon pitted against experienced and formidable opponents like Nevers, Chatillon, and Coligny, but held his own against them. In 1555, he was but little over 22 years of age, and he was preferred to the command at a critical moment of the emperor's career, over the heads of veteran soldiers much senior to himself. Even at that age, he was more of a statesman than a soldier. Philip Augustus of France was but 15 when he began to reign alone. Yet, boy, though he was, he never for a moment swerved from his course, or made a false step. Other great rulers who showed marked precocity were Louis XI of France, Isabella the Catholic, Margaret of Denmark, Gustavus I, Vassa, Charles IX, Christina and Gustavus III of Sweden, Ivan the Terrible and Peter the Great of Russia, and the Great Elector of Brandenburg. 3. Another series of facts pointing to the mental superiority of royalty can be drawn from considerations concerning prime ministers, their work, their personalities, and their total number. Roquelieu was strong, and Louis XIII was weak. Sully aided Henry IV of France, and Pombal, in the 18th century, remade Portugal. If it should be found that the total number of such prime ministers exceeded the number of sovereigns supposed to equal them in natural ability, achievement, influence, or whatever serves as the criterion, then it would be something to the discredit of royalty. But even then, as the statesmen were drawn from many families and from a class numbering many thousands, whereas the great monarchs came from one interrelated family and a total of less than 1,000, it would not prove royalty inferior in natural ability to the nobles and commoners. As a matter of fact, the total number of statesmen alleged to be great is less than the total number of monarchs. This is not in itself proved the monarchs and caste of monarchs superior to other castes, but does present the sort of fact that one would meet with the royal breed actually mentally superior. Opportunity may have helped the monarch more than the ministers, but as differences of opportunity are shown by other tests to be usually of slight causative value, it is not at all likely that such differences of opportunity could account for the vast differences in numerical ratios. Differences that make it thousands of times more likely than among average people that the breed of kings will produce a statesman. 4. The same sort of indication is furnished by the records of monarchs as military leaders. Matching non-royal generals against royal, the comparison favours the generals of royal birth. There have been comparatively few generals of the first rank from other than royal families. Many others of sub-royal birth have been placed in the highest command, so that it is not true that they have wanted opportunity. In this way, the two classes can be fairly compared in terms of success and failure. The dozen greatest non-royal generals do not show any equal amount of success, or in any way the same evidence of genius. Marlborough is better remembered than Eugene, but the latter actually won more battles and with fewer men. Wallenstein is outranked by Gustavus. Even Napoleon belongs in part to royalty, since the great Parvenu augmented the strength of royalty, inasmuch as he became royal and allied his family with royalty. Also, the great changes and improvements in the art of war have been introduced, with the exception of Napoleon, not by generals who were of lower origin, but by those actually born in the regal caste. All this falls in with the fact that the highest geniuses in this direction, those who are by all authorities acknowledged at the head of the profession of arms, tie the highest known number of eminent relatives close of kin. Therefore, a whole series of observation fits in with the theory of hereditary. 5. Monarchs and princes have shown their genius chiefly in war and government. They have become distinguished more as men of action than as men of thought. They have belonged essentially to the ultra-practical type. 
but the domain of literature and poetry seriously claims a number of important royal contributors chiefly in the olden times alfonso x in all probability actually deserves the credit of founding castilian prose he was the chief literary man of his generation his grandson king denise occupies the same position in regard to the language of portugal he was the chief poet in a court famous for its romancistas james verso aragon also was entitled to a high place in the early literature of the peninsula he wrote in addition to other works a chronicle of his own life an artistic autobiography which has excited much interest apart from its historical value all these men should be judged in comparison with their contemporaries and so judged they loom large and also have the important merit of having been pioneers there is some doubt if james I of scotland wrote the king's square but if he did he was a man of genius and bears somewhat the same relation to the literature of scotland charles of orleans and thibault of champagne have a noble place in the history of literature and sandra the fourth of castile and juan manuel a nephew of alfonso x must be mentioned thus four of the literary princes were closely related among more recent members of royal families the amount of literary activity is great though their production seems hardly worthy of being deemed works of genius if the question is made out of quantity of books published per thousand interrelated persons probably no other group of a thousand persons can be found to match royalty so that even on the side of mentality where royalty is weakest there is evidence of considerable activity quite as much as is to be expected when we remember that the qualities that first brought their ancestors into prominence and have held their descendants in place have been essentially practical rather than literary qualities in the domain of science with exception of military science their activity has been slight never approaching genius and rarely exceeding the merit entitled them to be classified as patrons henry the navigator is in a way an exception he was doubtless a personal initiator of the great maritime discovery of the fifteenth century everything points to his being truly a great character a soul filled with grand ideas but from the fragmentary information we possess he seems more of a colonizer and crusader than man of science in the strict sense of the word it may be that the desire to make discoveries for their own sake which is a distinguishing mark of the man of pure science is so much a peculiar trait apart from other traits that is not correlated with those practical mental gifts for administration which characterize royalty and which at one time or another have been absolutely essential to the formation of dynasties and their maintenance six the best argument in favour of the real and inherent nature of the intellectual gifts of royalty and their average superiority when judged as a single breed comes from thinking of proportion ratios if all questions are set aside except the total number of men of unquestioned genius as compared to the total within the group a striking fact is brought out in hereditary and royalty i show that out of a total of eight hundred twenty three royal persons there are about twenty of the intellectual eminence of frederick the great peter the great gustavus adolphus william the silent eugenia savoy etc let this proportion one in forty be compared with the number of great men who arise out of a total population at any period or in any country and the contrast is astonishing there have not been a most more than two hundred men of such unquestioned genius born in any of the nations england france germany or america during their entire history each has had a population of twenty fifty or a hundred million or more yet only a hundred or two hundred of such great geniuses have been produced the differences are overwhelming the chances in favour of royalty are several hundred thousand times as great in other words the average prince throughout modern times has more chance of becoming a man of genius 
there has been only about one chance in forty but this is more than a hundred thousand times as good as the chances for an average child of average parents even if there be thought to be but two monarchs whose natural ability is granted to be equal to the natural ability of other great men there would still be ten thousand times as many men of genius among royalty as is expected from the general population so there seems to be no way of getting around the fact that royalty has far exceeded the masses in the production of men of genius the same is true for several grades approaching the model or average type of royalty as as supremely gifted types merge gradually to types less and less gifted these average sovereigns are certainly more intelligent than the average commoner probably superior to the average professional man but i do not wish to lay particular emphasis on this point as it is nothing more than my own impression about the matter i am not concerned for the present with establishing a measure for the medium or neutral grade for royalty so much as with showing that there must have been very frequently enormous deviation in the plus direction these are the persons who have profoundly affected history seven there has always been a great deal of insanity in royalty and this in itself is an argument in favour of the genuineness of their genius the usual amount of insanity in a general population is less than one per cent among men of genius and their kinsmen it is at least four or five per cent and the same time is true for royalty before discussing the a priori reasons for considering as valid the foregoing seven direct reasons it will pay to summarize the general characteristics of royalty as this will lead the way to clearing up the whole matter and bringing everything in line with modern ideas concerning the inheritance of particular traits enough has already been said concerning their mental ability as for other important elements of character courageousness is the attribute most frequently found only very few have lacked this quality they have frequently been ambitious often excessively so but there is a considerable percentage of persons showing the absence or reverse of this trait selfishness greed and a thirst of power are very commonly found joined with ambition not satisfied with already wielding more power than any of their countrymen and burdened with a plethora of worldly gods the avaricious and domineering rules have seemingly impelled by inward instincts continued to strive for more and more a very common trait also is jealousy though one reads the word more between the lines than in the direct statements of historians diligence like ambition is met with in fully one half of all the rulers but in perhaps a third is replaced by sloth and indifference cruelty and licentiousness alternate in about half of the cases with amiability and chastity respectively contrasts are everywhere met with and these contrasts call for a great deal more study and along more exhaustive lines than can be presented just here but as so little has been done to bring these psychological and ethical problems into touch with the facts of history the two lists which i have here present are worth considering in all probability the same contrast will be presented by a more extended study one embracing all the modern rulers or indeed any historical families who have been sufficiently in the light of publicity it will be observed that there is not any marked tendency for the cruel licentious types to occur in the earlier ages also it should be noted that intermediate types are not very common even if all the doubtful persons are allotted to the medium grade including those who are obscure six tables are presented on the pages from two hundred sixty six to two hundred sixty eight displaying and comparing data for the early rulers in three columns licentious doubtful and chaste or cruel doubtful and not cruel france early rulers licentious philip i philip augustus charles the sixth charles the seventh louis the eleventh charles the eighth 
Louis the Twelfth, Francis I, Henry the Second, Charles the Ninth, Henry the Third, Henry the Fourth. Doubtful, Philip the Fourth, Charles the Fourth, Louis the Tenth, Philip the Fifth, John, Catherine de Medici, Mary de Medici. Chaste, Louis the Sixth, Louis the Seventh, Louis the Eighth, Blanche of Castile, Louis the Ninth, Philip the Third, Charles the Fifth, Louis the Thirteenth. England early rulers. Licentius, William the Second, Henry the First, Richard the First, John, Henry the Third, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, Edward the Fourth, Henry the Eighth, Dalville, Henry the Second, Edward the Second, Richard the Third, James I, Chaste, William the Conqueror, Stephen, Henry the Third, Edward the First, Richard the Second, Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth, Henry the Sixth, Mary, Elizabeth, Charles the First, France, early rulers, cruel. Philip Augustus, Philip VI, John, Louis XI, Catherine de Medici, Henry III, Mary de Medici, Louis XIII, Doubtful, Philip I, Charles IV, Louis X, Philip V, Philip VI, Louis XII, Cruel in War, Francis I presented the Huguenots, Henry II, Not Cruel, Louis VI, Louis VII, Louis VIII, Blanche of Castile, Louis the Ninth, Philip the Third, Charles the Fifth, Charles the Sixth, Charles the Seventh, Charles the Eighth, Henry the Fourth. England early rulers. Cruel, William the Second, John, Edward the Fourth, Richard the Third, Henry the Eighth, Elizabeth. Doubtful, William the First, Richard the First, Edward the First, Edward the Third, Henry the Fourth, Henry the Fifth, Mary, Charles the First. Not cruel, Stephen, Henry the Third, Henry the Second. Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, Henry the Sixth, Richard the Second, James the First, Castile, early rulers, not false, deceitful, cruel, or tyrannical. Ferdinand the First, Alfonso the Eighth, the Noble, Ferdinand the Third, Maria Regent, John the First, Henry the Third, John the Second, Isabella, except in a relation to the Inquisition. Opposite traits: Araca, Alfonso the Tenth, Sancho the Fourth. Ferdinand the Fourth, Alfonso the Eleventh, Peter the Cruel, Henry the Second, Aragon, early rulers, not false, deceitful, cruel, or tyrannical, Peter the First, Ramiro the Second, Raymond, Berenger, Peter the Second, Peter Third the Great, Martin the Humane, Ferdinand the Just. Opposite traits: Alfonso the First, James the First, Peter the Fourth, John the Second, Ferdinand the Catholic. The considerable number of early sovereigns in England and France, who are either chaste or not cruel, most of all kind or benevolent, is to my mind extremely significant. The same lesson is drawn from the early history of Castile and Aragon, when its number of rulers who were not false, deceitful, cruel, or tyrannical. Why are historians continually explaining the bad characters by the influence of the habits and customs of the ages in which the individuals lived? Who is no worse than his contemporaries? Is a phrase frequently met. Is he to say, and has been reasonably sound, so the reader accepted unquestionably, but generally such statements are utterly contrary to facts. Due allowance must be made for the age in which she lived is another favourite phase, but I should like to ask just what that due allowance is. The result of counting 568 cases of royal persons, all classes and both sexes, has been to prove that vicious types of character are not much more numerous in one age than in another, even if judged by standards of today. 
If the matter were gone into carefully, I have no doubt that it could be demonstrated that a slight increase in the percentage of moral types marks each generation. But this is not the chief or the first fact. In descriptive science, we search for differences, and here be the most conspicuous difference of those which exist in one single generation, one age and one country. Now the significance of all this lies in the remarkable way in which the diversified facts fit into the theory of hereditary. The expectations of grammatic inheritance are fulfilled by every feature of this series of observations. There are two main subdivisions to the argument. The first derives itself from the fact that the characters are contrasted. The second from the generalizations that have been made as to the mental traits of royalty as a whole. All the biological researches on the subject of hereditary that have been recently made have united in making it more and more clear that all inheritable characteristics tend to be segregated in the course of transmission from generation to generation. This segregation of separately inherited factors is the essential feature of mentalism as is understood today. Thus, while the separation of cruel and non-cruel types, licentious and chaste, ambitious and indolent, etc., is not clearly and absolutely defined, the tendency to segregation which is observed is to be expected from the usual workings of hereditary, and furthermore, nothing of the sort is to be expected as a result of environment. In Hereditary and Royalty I continually dwelt upon the phenomena of segregation and its significance to those who aim at understanding human character. Therefore, the subject will not be discussed further, except to refer to the fact that a large number of recently compiled pedigrees show alternative inheritance for a wide variety of human characteristics, anomalies, and diseases. These include eye colour, colour blindness, night blindness, hair colour and curliness, albinism, diabetes, insipidus, split foot, polydactylism, brachydactylism, pulmonary tuberculosis, deaf mutism, marked ability, chronic trophodema, angioneuronic edema, hermaphrodism, hemophilia, imbecility, insanity, and allied characters. If diseases and other peculiarities of the body are transmitted in the all-or-nothing principle, there is so much more reason for believing that peculiarities of mind are transmitted in the same manner. It lends subsidiary support to the view which I advanced in 1902-1903 and have since many times defended that it is impossible to understand human nature and the difference between one man and another except on the double assumption. First of the main differences are due almost entirely to inherent predetermined grammatic differences, as second of those differences tend to be inherited on the all-or-nothing yes or no present or absent principle. Besides the confirmation which modern statistical researchers and the development of the pedigree chart method of intensive analysis led to the extreme view of grammatic causation. Another entirely different line of support comes from the biological laboratory, especially from microscopical research on the structure of elementary cells. Since 1901, it has become more and more generally admitted that the sex of the offspring is predetermined in the egg, and not the result of environmental stimuli. In many of the invertebrates, notably the insectivora, and in some of the vertebrates and the hapus among human beings, it has been proved that differences in sex are due to the differences already present in the gametes from which these individuals are formed. The behaviour of the minute granules which a nuclear arrangement govern the growth and functioning of these gametes, the number and arrangement of the granules, chromosomes, in a word, all the recently discovered phenomena in regard to sex bear out the view of the importance of predetermined causes. The same application is to be made of microscopical study of enzymes in relation to Mendelian heredity 
And finally, it may be added that the researchers concerning the causation of twins point in the same direction. It is necessary for historians, psychologists, and sociologists to know something of the results of such investigations. Even it is impossible for them to follow the details or to interest themselves such in the questions why they remain subjudice. It can at least avail themselves of the condensed conclusions as soon as these conclusions have passed into the domain of verified and accepted knowledge. If they fail to do so, they will surely be to the extent behind the times and less able to understand human nature, either in the actuality of the present or a vision of the past. 8. Another survey of the whole series of historical observations that have been made and arranged within this volume compels the same conclusions both as to the genuineness of the hereditary factor and the supposed superiority of royalty. Avert the a priori point of view, or the peculiarities which the members of the royal families are found to possess in a more or less excessive pedigree are just the sort of traits that they ought to possess if hereditary and general selection are the all-important forces. The formulation of royalty as a biologically isolated caste dates from very ancient times. The pedigrees of reigning princely houses of Europe usually go back in the male line to the ninth or 10th century. Leo's genealogy gives also all the ancestors in the female lines. On viewing these fan-shaped pedigrees, one can see at a glance that nearly the entire lineage of the royalty is made up either of members of the royal families, strictly speaking, or of the nobility. Of course, if one could trace the lines far enough into the past, they would finally merge in the general population. But the point is that royalty, as a result of selection and breeding, has gradually been formed into a distinct sub-variety of the human race, and this process of separation has been going on for many centuries. During that time, new men have been coming forward, usually from the ranks of the nobility, rising in the social scale, and some of these have been themselves taken into the royal fold. Others, like the rich and powerful nobles, whose daughters have married into royalty, are in that way included in the pedigrees. The caste of royalty is, genealogically speaking, surrounded by a fringe of the nobility without any definite demarcations. That there has been a genuine survival of the fittest within the ranks of royalty, there can be no question. The history of each country shows this. The kings who have been forced to abdicate, and the lions that have become sterile, have been the weaker rather than the stronger. I have already proved in Hereditary and Royalty, Chapter 17, that the inferior branches have left fewer adult descendants. A review of the reigning dynasties included in the present volume brings out a proof that the struggle for the possession of the throne, the stronger rather than the weaker, have survived and become the progenitors of future kings and princes. William the Conqueror was a greater man than any of the immediate kings of the Saxon time. Henry I defeated his weaker brother Robert. Henry II replaced Stephen. Henry IV was superior to Richard II. William III to James II. Bruce won on his merits. William the Silent was greater than the rulers whom he displaced. The same is true of Gustavus Vasa, founder of the Swedish line. The weaker Sigismund was deposed by his stronger rival Charles IX. In early Russia, there was much struggle and survival of the strongest. The Romanovs began by the election of the throne of the able and judicious Fyodor. In Portugal, Alfonso III deposed his brother Sancho II, and the line continued upon its stronger stem. Also, John of Avis who became John I, was superior to Ferdinand I, who he deposed. Examples of the selection of strong kings in early Spain are Sancho IV versus his nephew Alfonso, Henry II versus Pedro the Cruel, and the choice by James the Conqueror of Peter III of Aragon as his favourite son. Turkey furnishes many instances of struggles within the royal family. The military gifts of Orkan, 
1326-1359, enabled him to gain the succession over his older brother. The jealousy and rivalry among the princes of the House of Osman exceeded all bounds. The murder of younger brothers was a recognised custom. It is said that when the aged Sultana, who was the daughter of Muhammad I, came to Bayezid to move his fraternal feelings in Dejim's favour, Bayezid answered with stern brevity by citing the Arab proverb, There is no relationship among princes. Also in the wars between the nations, the greater nations have all started with modest beginnings. Those nations that have never had great kings have remained small or been absorbed by the larger. It can be easily shown that all the kingdoms that have remained small and unimportant have never chanced to fall under the guidance of men of genius. The bigger men, controlling as they did the bigger nations, fought against each other until the great absolute monarchies were constructed. And so much of Europe came as it did. In the 15th century, under the sway of four men, Charles V, Francis I, Henry VIII, and Suleiman of Turkey, besides contests among those already within the royal fold, to maintain their position or to gain a greater prestige. There have been, at all times, struggles on the part of the sub-royal or noble classes, those wishing admittance within the consanguinity of the actual reigning families. Thus history has been a process of natural selection. In the long struggle for wealth and power, royalty is merely a name applied to those interrelated families that succeed in getting and keeping the most of what most men want. Some branches of modern royalty have not recently added to their possessions had been left in peace and enjoyment of their estates for, say, two or three generations. This gives the superior observer the idea that being born to the purple means the ease of that struggle. Nothing could be further from the truth. There may or may not be a necessary struggle today among Skynes of royal families. But as far as the past is concerned, there has been a tremendous struggle which epitomises the ceaseless human struggle and rises to the top, awe-inspiring from its duration, its distinction and its success. And what would be the traits most probably found in persons able to win in the old game of war and plunder? In the earliest days, kings were elected, but the most part since the 10th century, when the genealogical record begins to be authentic, the breed of kings has been made up of such counts and parents as were successful in war and government. For such success, bravery is obviously a primary need. Ambition and energy, mental insight and alertness are also essential. Greed, jealousy, cruelty licentiousness would not be drawbacks. The first two might indeed be aids, but most important of all would be just those mental qualities, whatever they may be, that are essential to the leadership of men. These new men will reproduce their kind to a very great extent, although it would not be expected that all their descendants would equal them. The pedigrees of royalty are peppered with the names of men of genius, but also included in the pedigrees are the wives and the ancestors of the men of genius and the ancestors of the wives of the men of genius. For this reason, varying degrees of ability are met with both in the pedigrees and in the monarchs, so it is to be expected that some of the monarchs would be deficient in ability or in ambition, or in any given trait. But the essential fact still remains. The extraordinary high percentage out of the total of persons naturally able to do just that sort of work that fate thrust upon them. And this explains why, bearing a percentage of exemptions, they have always been so eager and willing to take upon themselves the burdens and responsibilities of their position, and though having much, seek even more and more. All living species represent adaptation. Had there been no adaptation, there could be no species, and the same is true of this sub-variety of the human race. Thus the a priori point of view fits in with all the facts and offers a single simple explanation. The law of parsimony is satisfied. It is illogical to introduce further causes 
when a single simple explanation will suffice this single simple explanation i will call the comedic interpretation of history but before discussing the use and definition of this phrase i will take up at this point the important question of a possible bias on the part of historians that might falsely magnify my conclusions i have postponed the discussion under the present because only now have all the facts been brought together which when viewed and cross-viewed give a sufficiently clear reply the question of false bias in chapter two i have much insisted on the need of distinguishing between random errors and constant errors random errors may be ignored if all one wishes is a lower limit to the degree of correlation constant errors may sometimes be ignored or looked upon in the same way as the random errors provided be known that they work towards lowering the correlation certainly they would then not lead to a false conclusion thus the constant error that i have introduced by intentionally and continually placing the doubtful cases in a way to count against personal influences may be treated as an error which can cause no anxiety on the contrary constant errors might tend to raise the correlation improperly therefore it is important to consider the following possible sources of fallacy if historians have in their own statements overestimated the importance of kings or if following psychophantic chroniclers they have been inclined to overpraise the successful and underpraise the unsuccessful then the correlation ratios would be thereby artificially raised but a consideration of the whole question indicates a minimum of error from such a source there are at least five reasons for holding this error as probably slight one for the early history of some countries such as spain and portugal the reports of a few chroniclers under royal patronage from nearly the whole of the source material the latter history of these countries is much better authenticated and supported by more varied materials if the latter history did not exhibit the strong correlation which it does one would suspect that the early history were felicius the latter history shows about the same correlation as the earlier therefore there is evidence that the chroniclers were not unjustly biased although the nations which have been very exhaustively studied such as prussia and france don't show a lowering of the personal influence and furthermore these much studied countries show the influence just as strong even as late as the seventeenth and eighteenth centuries all this tends to increase one's reliance on the opinions of the early chroniclers it leaves a belief that the kings who were much praised or blamed were really not so very different from the pictures drawn of them by their contemporaries or sometimes patched up by chroniclers hired by their descendants three estimates of historical characters have been but barely reversed the estimate of edward the second which froissant made has never been reversed richard the third of england is an exception to the rule as time goes on new evidence becomes forthcoming but it is rare that a character needs to be much reshifted in the scale of estimates everything points to the great influence of great personalities within the periods and reigns of well-authenticated facts therefore why should they not have been so in the age a little earlier special instances doubtless come up which arouse suspicion but these are few in number compared with the total number of monarchs studied in their volume four it must also be remembered that while more circumspect study sometimes lowers sovereigns in our estimates sometimes perhaps more often the result of modern research is to act in the opposite direction therefore it cannot be supposed that the correlation ratio is seriously affected or spiritually raised by the introduction of monarchs who obscure or are delineated only by partisan historians five 
Additional arguments are derived from a general survey of the whole material. The suddenness of the changes on the deaths of monarchs in a case that the historians have been telling the truth. Why should they have described such a multitude of reversals in the fortunes of nations unless these actually occurred? Why should they have described so many minorities as disastrous when government was divided, unless indeed they were disastrous? Furthermore, the distribution in pedigree charts of strong and weak kings in relation to their ancestry, particularly their maternal grandfathers, leads to the same sort of reasoning. Here is a deed concerning the problem of whether the monarchs caused the conditions or vice versa. See page 240, et sequa. The strong contrast between successive periods, the strong contrast between monarchs close in period of time, which is expected by hereditary, the rapidity of the change, are all in accordance with the truth having been told. It is highly improbable, virtually impossible, that historians could estimate all these monarchs incorrectly and make the latter generations tally with or probably resemble the earlier. In a word, make the whole scheme hold together. For the view of history which postulates the extreme importance of hereditary and of selection, this breeder's view of history, as one might call it, I propose the phrase, gametic interpretation of history. This is preferable to using the word gametic as genetic, has so many different connotations, has been used and abused until it has a variety of meanings. Genetics merely means the study of successive generations. Of course history is genetic. Everything that has lived is genetic. Everything that grows is genetic. But the word gametic, which is much in use among students of Mendelian hereditary, means something very specific. The gametes are the reproductive cells, both male and female, Gametically determined qualities, differences, among adults are those that develop because of qualities, differences, already present in the reproductive cells for which the adults spring. It is not conceivable that all adult differences can be due to gametic differences, but it is conceivable that nearly all important adult differences are foreshadowed by differences within the germ cells, gametes, and a gametic interpretation of persons, families, dynasties, and nations is merely one which accounts for the great bulk of the observations in this way. Gametic is the antithesis of environmental. The question now comes up, can we separate hereditary from environment? The answer from one point of view is no, from another yes. The gametes unite and form the new individual, Sligot. The new individual must have an environment to develop in. So from one point of view, the gametic and environmental forces are inseparable, but as soon as a problem becomes a problem of differences, it takes on an entirely new aspect. To prove that observed differences can be shown to be caused by one or the other and not both of these determiners, let us think of a simple illustrative experiment. An agriculturalist cultivates two plots of ground side by side of approximately equal richness. He then sows a large amount of seed of equal average quality. He then applies a fertilizer to one plot and not to the other. An observed difference would, in this case, be due to environment. By the same method, he could, by keeping the other conditions identical and changing only the quality of the seed, observe a difference which would be due to the gametic differences. By this sort of reasoning, it is already known, in a practical way, that a great number of valid variations, differences, in domestic animals, are due to the gametic differences, and not to environment. Differences in colour of the hair and eyes are caused by differences in the gametes, while linguistic differences among mankind are a good example of the action of environment. So as in the interpretation which is given here for the influence of monarchs on political and economic history, 
It cannot be said that the monarchs cause the history or they cause the conditions, but it can be contended that the differences between the conditions in one reign and the next were caused by the differences between the monarchs, and this is a quintessence of this research. End of section 18